But the biggest challenge we have in that sort of due diligence period between getting your finance and getting a contract to become unconditional is a building inspection report. They are sometimes a little bit too onerous outside the scope of the clause, but and they can frighten people effectively. There's actually nothing wrong with the property, but it's convincing people that they aren't structural issues, that they are outside the scope of the clause. Welcome to Perth Property Insider, where you will learn how to grow your wealth and improve your life using Perth property. Our show is brought to you by Investors Edge Real Estate, the highly rated and award-winning property management, sales and buyers agency servicing the whole of Perth. Now, here's your host, Jared Mann. Hey, Paul. Really excited to be diving into a topic that's not really covered on many podcasts before. So, excited to have you along. Thanks for having me. So give us a bit of background on um, yourself and how did you end up in settlements? Because everyone sort of doesn't wake up, uh, you know, doesn't go to school and think, oh, I'm going to become a settlement agent when I get older. It's a bit like a real estate agent. You all sort of don't head out and intend to be in this role, but find it somehow. And how did you find settlements? Yeah. Um, yeah, pretty much by accident, literally. I was had left school and didn't kind of know what I was doing. So I took a inverted commas gap year at, from uni and I was actually just tearing around the city being a push bike courier actually trying to just keep fit because i was training for sort of triathlons and things i was doing and actually got hit by a car and uh, while i was pondering that injury and um lying around us I, I bumped into a mate who um was doing some outside work for a law firm he goes you should just give this a go so i just happened to find an outside clerk job at a um at a settlement agency and started doing the outside work there as a bit of a bit of a thing and yeah ultimately spent 13 years in that place <laughs> uh, before then just opening up my own agency you know, in 2006. Yeah. So, yeah, literally by accident. I didn't know what I couldn't even tell you what a settlement agent was when I first started and, yeah, just learned it from, from the get-go. So what does a settlement agent actually do in their role? Yeah, They're sure. Yeah, just uh, think, so, yeah, surely you just plug it into a computer and it happens all by itself. Yeah, yeah, totally. We wish it was that simple, but um, ultimately, in a nutshell, a settlement agent role is to um, sort of, I guess, facilitate the change in title. So, acting for either a buyer or a seller or both, we prepare, I guess, the legal documentation, if you like, to um, facilitate the change on the land title at the land title's office. So, we liaise directly with the client's banks, whether it be the discharging bank or new new mortgage bank, um, other settlement agents. Real estate agents, of course, to yeah facilitate that change. So, yeah, in a perfect world, it's preparing some documents, lodging at Landgate, and everyone moves on. So, um, but in a nutshell, that's what we do. So, how long do you find that settlements typically take? Because I have my perception as a as a selling agent, but you know, you'd probably have seen things with all ramps of people's circumstances. Of course, yeah. So, I guess yeah, typically settlement is roughly around a six-week sort of period we sort of look at. So on a general rule, we would see, you know, a contract come in where it's accepted on a particular date and they've got the buyers have a 21-day period to sort of get their finance in place and things like that, do their sort of due diligence like uh, building inspection reports and t- timber pest reports and things like that. Well, most of those are done within seven days of acceptance or within seven days of finance because I, I know I write mine to be after finance, the buyers can get their finance and then not outlay for the reports beforehand. But I, I, I've always done that, but I've never really known what's the norm. 
No, yours probably the norm. So, but yeah, it, it can vary. We can certainly have them where they get them, you know, 14 days to get their inspections and things done and then uh, 21 days for their finance. So some, some buyers are particular and they like to know the information before they get their finance approved. But others, are, like you said, they, they don't particularly like outlaying the money if they're not even going to get their finance. So I guess nowadays we're sort of seeing people who are almost pre-approved anyway, aren't they? So they kind of got that sort of information in the bag pretty much before those inspections and things are being done. Yeah. So and then typically from those from that date, we're looking at um, roughly a sort of 21, 28 day sort of turnaround for settlement. So we can do our job, I guess, effectively do some more inquiries for the clients. And um, yeah, so. Anyway, typically from, you know, five to seven sort of weeks for a settlement. Yeah. And how quick have you seen finance periods come together uh, in a few years? So, and how long with how long have some of them been? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Some of them in eternity. So we, in this office, we deal with a lot of um, first home buyers in our building. So, you know, they have to go through savings plans and things like that with their builder and uh, lender. So they have sometimes up to three, four months to get their finance in place. And, you know, typically we can get finance approvals within sort of a few days. So if a, if a buyer, I guess, is pre-approved in essence, then we sort of get this. Uh, so long as they're approved within a certain sort of LVR to the bank, uh, they can get their, their approvals pretty much within a few days. So um, And that starts the ball rolling, starts that settlement date ticking. So, yeah, it can happen quickly. But like I said, we, we still have deals that are sitting in our office from 12 months ago, which are still waiting on finance. They get extensions and things like that, pending what they're sort of doing. Yeah. Okay. And if someone's paying cash, what what are the, is the usual period of how quick would someone make it if they, if they had genuine cash in their account ready to go? So I am seeing a lot more cash deals this year. I think I've sold to 10-odd buyers that are cash out of 40-odd buyers I've sold so far this year or maybe 50-odd buyers. And usually in a year, I might only see one or two cash. So there's a lot more cash floating around. Are you seeing that to be the case as well? Yeah, definitely. Perth seeing a lot of, uh, as you've probably seen as well, Jared, like a lot of Eastern State investors who are popping in and seeing our markets looking pretty good. So cashed up literally and um, come in and come in and buy up. So yeah, cash a cash settlement. Ultimately, if it's especially if it's a clear title, so if the current owner doesn't have a mortgage on the property, and you know we can do a settlement literally nowadays in two or three days if we really needed to, but bearing in mind that the buyer can't sell a situation, yeah, it could slow things up if they've got a, a loan. Yeah, we can't we can't get due diligence done and do our inquiries with local councils and things like that that we you know specifically do for, for buyers. So yeah, it can be done. It can be done very very quickly, but. Um, you know, even even with cash buyers, we sort of suggest to them maybe a um, so at least fourteen days, and that that too in itself is actually still quite a quick settlement turnaround. So um, yeah, yeah, yeah. I tend to write my cash offers up at thirty days, and that seems to be a good balancing act. Absolutely, yes, please. If you can continue to do that, that would be wonderful. That's <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. So um, how can a settlement agent actually ensure a smooth process? Because I've dealt with hundreds of settlement agents over the years and, and you kind of take smooth for granted until you've got a bad one and then, and then it's letting bar. <laughs> so Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's getting in touch with the clients pretty early in the piece ultimately. That's kind of where 
we as an office certainly try and keep it running smoothly as possible. We're speaking with the clients very early in the piece to make sure they've got all their ducks in a row before even a contract goes unconditional, for example. So if it's a selling, if a client's selling a property, make sure that, you know, have they got a, a bank involved? Are they discharging a loan? Have they got certain compliance in place? So as you know, there's certain things they have to have in place like um, RCDs and hardwired smoke alarms and things like that. Having, ensuring those things are under control at the, at the time, a buyer to make sure that you know they're on to the conditions that are set out in the contract to make sure that um, you know they're booking their building inspections, or their termite inspections, and liaising with the agent to make sure that they can get someone in to do those things, etc. So yeah, just to make ensuring each of the client are meeting their contractual obligations. Um, another thing that pops up for a seller, for example, depending on the sale price of a property. They're required to get ATO clearances and things like that. So um, the ATO can take anywhere from one to thirty days to get one of those compliance certificates to us. So we um, we try and get onto that quite early if we can. If the agent hasn't done it from the get go, then um, we certainly try and get those things out of the way, and um, so they're not at a last minute rush when it comes time to um, getting closer to settlement date, and we're still chasing these things. Yeah, and I guess if someone's overseas, that can be a bit more complicated as well. Yes, we love it when they're overseas. <laughs> I always get it. It's like, oh, Jared, you know, I'm thinking of taking a holiday. Is it going to be a problem? And I'm always like looking at the dat- exact dates relative to our sale contract and being like, oh, you know. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, half their life they're going overseas, especially people buying. I love it when they're buying a house and then going overseas. I'd be a, a joy that I'm spending all this money and. Cash is just going out everywhere. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Just, you know, while I'm spending money, I may as well just keep spending it. So, yeah, that's certainly a reality is making sure things run smoothly because if they are going away, or and in WA, I guess predominantly we've got a, a big FISO workforce, right? So it's just even checking that. It's almost a generic question now. Hey, is FISO? Because, um, or clients even more obliged to even tell us nowadays that you know I'm I'm away I'm, I'm not you know I'm not in for that swing and things like that so yeah we've got to be mindful that they're around so they can sign some documentation or complete some identity checks and things that we need before they go away so because the last thing we need is them to be either overseas or on a worksite somewhere where they can't get access to signing documents because mm. unfortunately we still use pens in Ellen you still use pens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we do. When do you think that main move to being digital? Do you have it? Is that even on the radar for, you know, Landgate, et cetera? For- yeah, definitely. At least the banks have mainly moved their documentation to being digital now, thankfully. Now, uh, COVID got them there finally. Yes, they are. They are almost, almost there, the banks. They, so 99.9% of their documentation is digital and they can set accept DocuSign documents, but a new mortgage still, for example, in WA, just so everyone out there knows, they still require an original signature on a document and return to them before they can settle. So yeah, clients will get their documents remotely or online, I should say, and um, sign them by DocuSign, but they will be asked specifically to return an original version to their bank. So so yeah, they still need a pen. With us, we send the majority of our documents out electronically to clients and can accept you know electronic documents back. But there's still certain verification of documents, ID and things that we still need in reality. But there and and there's times when a settlement can't settle electronically. It has to be in paper, like old school. And um, yeah, that's when the pen comes out and documents need to be signed with wet signatures, as we call it. So is that to do with how the title is or what sort of requires that? So 
Yeah, there's certain there's certain documentation that still can't be accepted in the electronic workspace. For example, a deceased estate. So if there's an executor on a title, effectively the way the electronic workspace works is if it can't be stamped uh, for stamp duty purposes in state revenue, then uh, it can't be acknowledged in the PEXA slash electronic workspace that we operate out of. So there's certain documentations that still we can't we can't get on there. They're working on it. There's over recent they've got more documentation that's uh, acceptable, but um, that is the prime example where we see that there's a, we know straight away that it won't settle electronically and we'll go back to old school sort of settlements. So what are some of the common like challenges or issues that you see that can arise during that process and how do you potentially handle them as they come up? Yeah, I feel <laughs> the biggest, uh, the biggest challenge we have in that sort of due diligence period between, you know, getting finance and getting a contract to become unconditional is a building inspection report. As a rule of thumb, um, as you've probably seen, they are sometimes a little bit too onerous outside the, the scope of the clause, but, and they can frighten people effectively. They buy a house and they get this list of things that are inverted commas wrong with it. Um, there's actually nothing wrong with the property, but it's convincing people that they aren't structural issues, that they are outside the scope of the clause and it's not the intention of the clause and things like that. So we feel that that is one of the biggest bugbears or time-consuming sort of side effects of settlements at the minute is dealing with those and communicating with clients that it's not all bad or if they are bad, help them, I guess, if you like, um, get through that process and give them the, yeah, what we should be concerned about or if they are a real problem to help them through that process and we have to issue certain paperwork to the other to the other agents to uh, make a claim effectively to say you know please fix it <laughs> yeah, it's a sort of standard defect notice is the term we use so there's certain things that we have to put out there but at times it's convincing sometimes buyers in particular that those inspections aren't as bad as they look yeah so it's a that's the challenge funnily enough i had my other Really good friend, um, Paul Antonelli from ResiCert on the show last episode. So people can back and listen to that one and hear his take on things. It, got, it was pretty interesting chat. So yeah, sure. <laughs> and you would have seen as well as I have the types of inspection reports and how some of them can be really complicated and difficult to read. And whereas others like there's a very simple and, you know, show clearly, you know, how things are classified and what is to be concerned about so but then with the other end of the spectrum it can be very complicated yeah i agree yeah there's some of them we see reports that are 80 pages long one page is all we're looking for that <laughs> actually has a summary of what's actually going on and the rest is it's almost scaremongering just about i feel sorry for buyers sometimes they must really panic i had sellers who panic when they see them uh they come through and they just they think oh my gosh what's wrong with my house whereas in reality it's yeah there's nothing actually really wrong with it yeah yeah we guess every property has some maintenance and other things and it's a case of being aware of it and knowing what you need to do or not need to do i agree yeah in, in a way it's it's kind of good that the buyers are aware that there's some sort of maintenance issues but in effect it's but explaining to them that it's outside the scope of a contract it can sometimes be yeah a bit of a challenge for sure so what are the types of documents and paperwork that you typically see involved? Because you touched on a few of them there, but the average person that's listening that hasn't done a settlement then might not yet know. So yeah, sure. So we we have to we have to meet 
certain obligations under our act to um, ensure that we have permission to act for someone. So we have certain appointments, a client authorization form, for example. So an appointment to settlement agent starts giving us permission to sort of do everything for them. Client authorization allows us to settle in the electronic workspace and sort of um, confirms so we've done a bit of an ID check for these buyers or sellers. That's been a big change for everyone, I guess. We are. I haven't seen any other Nigerians selling properties since the two that they've sold a few years back that prompted all, all of these ID checks. That- Correct. Robbed that all that in the first instance. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, fingers crossed they can take their efforts somewhere else and, you know, use their powers for good. I'm not sure with other scams going on, but <laughs> Oh, gosh. Everywhere we turn, right? It's, um, and no doubt we'll touch on that later. <laughs> it's, um, yeah, so other typical documentation. So ATA clearances, as I touched on before. So if a, if a seller is selling a property for over $750,000, is there is the magic number. They're required to get a, um, an ATA clearance to ensure that they're not ducking off overseas and taking their money with them and not lodging a tax return and things like that. So it's effectively uh, advising the ATO that they're not sort of foreign owners and they would, yeah, not, not ducking off with all their money and not lodging tax returns in Australia. So some other things for buyers, we have to confirm they're not foreign for duty, stamp duty purposes. So if there's a foreign buyer in there, they actually have a quite an onerous additional amount of stamp duty to pay. It's actually 7% of the purchase price on top of their normal stamp duty amount. So it can be quite expensive. So uh, that's that's something we have to sort of uh, be mindful of. Other documents, uh, better schedule identity, which I touched on, discharges the mortgage. So we advise, uh, we get the, the clients to speak with their bank to sign sort of their necessary documentation with their bank to release uh, the mortgage off their title. Uh, what's called an electrical safety certificate. As you know, Jared, we um, properties have to comply with RCD and hardwired smoke alarm legislation as well, which is a great thing. But there's a specific sort of certificate that an electrician can issue, and we like to see them. They don't sellers don't have to have them. They can sign a declaration to confirm that the property complies. But in a perfect world, we'd love to see um, an electrical safety certificate. So that's a bit of a bit of a review of the sort of documents we get from people. Yeah. Okay. So when it actually comes to doing some due diligence and what do you kind of look into and as far as your check scope for, for a buyer more so when they're when you're representing them that's right yeah so for a buyer in particular it's obviously reviewing their um, building inspection reports and timber pest reports if um they sort of get those in so certainly they're being done almost sometimes before we even see a contract but um during that sort of period so that's something we look at when a property goes unconditional, we do inquiries with local council, water court, town planning to get effectively what's called orders and requisitions from council. So the council will send us, in particular, that's probably the bigger one, the most important one we sort of get from a, from, for a buyer. Councils will give us indications whether there's been building licenses issued on the property, tells us whether or not there are all safety compliance issues, um, whether there's any orders against the property effectively. So it could be a health order against the property um, along those kind of lines. But more particularly, building licensing issues that we're sort of looking at. So a client might know that a property has been renovated, for example, or ex- an extension has been done. So has that been approved? Has a you know nice, amazing patio or pergola that's been attached to the back of the house? Is that actually a, an approved structure? Things like that. So we do that kind of due diligence for um, the buyer as well and present them present that to them so they're either comfortable in the notion that it actually is approved or get an understanding of what they're sort of getting. 
that's the, that's probably the, the the most important sort of one we do for a client. The, the water corp, it's generally effectively um, providing information as to where their sewer line runs, strangely enough, <laughs> so where it connects to the property. That's probably a bit more important for people who might be buying a property where they're going to subdivide it down the track, for example, and, or maybe maybe have the idea of knocking this house over and building something new. Where does the sewer line run? Um, can I build in a certain pattern? You know, it might run, might be a sort of connection point, if you like, on the property and it might show where that is. So it just gives them an indication of that uh, more particularly. Yeah. And what happens if the seller does have outstanding debts or other things registered against the title or even not registered against the title? How does that all dealt with? Because, you know, some sellers that are forced to sell probably do have a few things in the background that, you know, is the buyer still going to be able to get their property they bought with these things like this? Yeah, they certainly, um, that's certainly our job to make sure that they're all paid out effectively. So, uh, again, as part of those inquiries with Water Corporation and lo- uh, local council, et cetera, they do give us rating information on that property where there's any big outstanding debt, um, which we have seen in the past, absolutely. Strata fees is probably another one that comes up a bit. <laughs> I'm sorry, which one? Strata fees. Strata fees, yes. Yeah, yeah, there's plenty of those. Um, so they they are an issue if a, a you know, seller might be selling under a bit of duress and may not have paid their rates for quite some time. So that information does come through to us from those those authorities and for sure that is our requirement. We're acting for both buyer or seller, so either way, it is determined that those are paid out. It's actually a requirement that it's all cleared at the time of settlement and um, they're all paid out. And, um, yeah, the, the new buyer gets a nice clean slate. So have you got any, you know, recent experiences that come to mind where, you know, you feel like you've made a difference over, you know, another settlement agent that might just be not as uh, involved or do you try to prevent the things from occurring before they get to that place? <laughs> yeah, we, we certainly, um, you know, it's a joy of having really good staff. They They get on to these type of things really quickly in anything that might arise or show its face quite early in the piece, they're onto it very, very quickly. But I guess, and, and that's part of, you know, I guess being in, being around for a while, you sort of manage those things as quickly as possible from a personal experience or a settlement that I reckon, I think I've made a difference anyway in the process would be probably the biggest settlement I was involved in, which was, um, I, so uh, again, a bit of my background is I do a lot of land development sort of work for um, land developers in Perth, and one of my clients was, uh, they acquired uh, about 20 separate properties that uh, they were then obviously amalgamating to create a land subdivision, but that involved a settlement process that was clearly 20 different settlement agents, 20 separate banks in the background. They were also going into a joint venture with another entity that came in behind it to acquire all that land and so, you know, a, a typical settlement, paper settlement in the city that we run around and run up and down the terrace to do would take about 15 minutes. This one took about three and a half hours where you're literally checking documents, checking your monies, making sure everyone's happy. So with those, that, that amount of people in one room, it can be quite complicated. So I guess attention and effort in the lead up to that. It was to make sure that there was no glitch on the particular day. That's probably my claim to fame as to where <laughs> effort and um, support from staff and really sort of staying on top of those type of things comes to the floor where you can, yeah, just go over and above just a little bit more. 
and um, had the opportunity to do a settlement like that, which is just not normal. So um, my claim to fame. More interesting, better at the cat. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Then doing your vanilla one. Well, um, I thought I'd also chat to you about some of your experiences to pin a shop investing in property and, and you know, what has been some of the good and bad as well, because I know you'd love property through and through and, and, you know, have had various experiences over the years. So definitely had various experiences, some really good, some not so great. So um, typically, I guess um, any any investment that you do, whether it be in real estate or you know the stock market, whatever it turns out, they don't always work. Have had subdivision process myself. That was interesting. So I see it all the time with my bigger developers, of course. But to actually jump on and do a subdivision, you know, typical mum and dad subdivision where it was a vacant block, and we split it in half and sold off two separate lots. Sounds really simple. Processing is it's out of this world. I. I <laughs> How they do it on the magnitude of a 400 lot subdivision is just beyond me. And that's why they have massive things behind them. So that was a great experience though, and um, a successful one for my family, which was really, really good. So, um, so do you uh, think it'll uh, be easier the next time you, if, when and if you do it now that you've rolled with? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I guess absolutely. But with, I guess with, you know, always the joys of contacts in the industry, right? So having good relations with real estate agents property surveyors, developers, and things like that, by maintaining those good relationships, they're always only a phone call away when you're, um, <laughs> when you're into those kind of scenarios. But, and people such as yourself, you know, um, I'm particularly thinking of buying in this area. What are your thoughts? And, yeah, so and if I wasn't a super nice human, you probably wouldn't give me much of your time. So, hopefully, uh, you know, having those kind of relationships is really good for going in down the investment path. But, yeah, certainly a failure. I'll call it a failure because we, you know, lost money and that's, what's all about right <laughs> is uh my family and i we bought a property in queensland and um all you know romantic thoughts of buying this little old house that we're going to renovate or knock down and, and that was if people remember there was massive floods in queensland i had a property caught up in those as well so yeah and um we bought it just before those floods and having all these you know due diligence being done on you know construction of a new home or extending it and things and those floods came, didn't actually affect my house as such. Yeah, this is what happened to me too. It was, uh, but um, I'm talking a street away was underwater. Then we got to a point where, okay, we'll still investigate this this new construction, but uh, the banks just did not value it well because of its postcode. They were literally valuing postcodes at the time. They go, nah, sorry, that one was underwater. So um, that's, you know, it's a risk and we just don't want to touch it. And it was just getting out of control. So, and the house was old, and we knew that when we bought it, and it needed a lot of attention. So, cash flow drain then. It was so bit the bullet and just um, took the hit and moved on. Yeah, which um, which happens. But yeah, there's been a couple of success stories as well, which is you know outweighs the the not so good ones. <laughs> and hopefully for us, for property owners, um, everything's looking very good. What's your take on market? It's probably another good place to finish on because you see the sentiment of people, you see the sort of number of transactions, you get a feel for the things from that point of view. Yeah, what's your take on where things are at now and where you think they might be heading? Sure. I think, as I tell one of my staff, I clearly got it wrong. She, um, she went off on maternity leave and I was... Yeah, I think the market's going to soften. This is just before interest rates were going to rise and all that kind of thing. And well, I don't need to laugh because there's no 
the harm and slogging that yeah, my wife, Karina, does work. Is that human? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, good. So she, wonderful this year, went off on maternity leave. And I was like, no, no, we'll be okay. The market will soften because interest rates are going through the roof and the press was all over it, scaring everyone. And wow, was I so far wrong. The market is super, super strong in Perth. I actually don't see that changing too much because we have a supply issue. You know, Jared, if you can get a listing, you're doing pretty well as a real estate agent now. I mean, I think I think that's the biggest, biggest challenge they've got. Um, I'll sell it if you give it to me. But it's uh, uh, so I think ultimately we just, you know, typical basic economics, right? Supply and demand. Uh, demand is still super high, and but supply is pretty low. So, And I would be not liking trying to rent a property at the minute. So that, that too affects the desire for people to go, well, I'll go and buy something or I'll go and build something. And we're seeing both sides of that coin because of our links to land developers. So yeah, people are still building. You know, you see these horror stories in the press, uh, builders falling, you know, collapsing and who would want to build at this time? There's no trades, et cetera, et cetera. I just don't see that. <laughs> it's, uh, not from my desk anyway. So um, because of that that pressure on rental market and things like that, people are just going, well, I need to make that decision. To, I'll go and buy some. And yeah, properties are turning over real quick. The sale time, they're all based on this pressure, I think, of supply and demand. Yeah, I think I think WA, I haven't seen any actual numbers, but I still think our migration is still quite high. So um, the, the pressure on supply is still there. So... And, that, and, you know, I guess, again, in basic economics, that is that's the basis of putting a floor on those values, isn't it? So I think I think our market's still strong for a while yet. And are you seeing many transactions from apartments or villas and smaller, like, properties with, you know, affordability pushing people towards that end of the market yet? Or is it still just sort of steady as it goes? Because I'm still finding some are pretty difficult to sell, but then... Ones that have a little bit more land component, like the villa versus the apartment, I'm starting to see a bit more heat around those and, and more people coming and selling those properties that have been wanting to for a while because their values are returning back. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah, I think if there's still that little bit of a land component, I'm seeing that just literally with a deal that's just come through my across my desk. Yesterday, as a, a repeat client, they had a little investment unit they had in Inalu and... Uh, that had a nice, you know, it's a great little spot. And they sold it close to $100,000 over their expectation because there's that kind of pressure on in that sort of pocket. And, you know, it, had a, it was a great little a great little unit. But, um, yeah, still had that little bit of a land component. We don't see much, I guess, your generic apartment sort of complexes, I guess, running out the door. But, you know, I think still if it's probably typical of Australians, isn't it, we still want our little pocket of dirt. <laughs> so... Yeah, they, they're still going pretty strong, for sure. But it's certainly very backward compared to <laughs> Sydney and uh, Melbourne. Like, you know, you don't get much of your money over there. And I guess that's why a lot of people are coming here as well. Yeah, correct. Yeah, yeah. And I guess, yeah, from a migration point of view, but also an investment point of view. Yeah, and certainly Eastern State investors are seeing pretty good value for money here. For half a million dollars, they're just going, oh, I have two thanks. It's, um, it's kind of, it's, they, just can't, they just can't believe it. And that's another point that I thought I'd ask you on. Um, with the investors, I re- released an episode a couple of episodes back that why are local locals either late to the party or leaving the party? It, would you is your would you say that's what you're seeing as well? A, a, a lot of them are selling out. They're sort of sick of having their investment properties for various reasons, and 
and most of the people that are buying are actually East Coasters, not locals. Yes, yeah, definitely seeing that. We're seeing yeah, big influx of East State investors for sure. And um, I think it's purely because of uh, that they must they've got to see value in it. You know, they're sort of buyers agents sort of parties, I guess, over East who are even looking for these people and even within our land development side of things, there's a lot of the a lot of the construction that's going on as well is East State investors who are jumping on board and, and building in these estates, try and get onto this market pretty hot and you know, they can depreciate things in a in a newer a newer property environment as well. So, you know, they they definitely see value here for sure, and uh, and and they're, and they're generally cashed up. So they probably beat some of the locals to the to the party as well. So if I'm selling my house and someone offers me a cash offer and they're from overseas, uh, over east, um, I'd be really concerned. Really, as a seller, are you? you just want to see the coin, and uh, if you're prepared to pay it, I'll prepare to sell it to you. Yeah. Okay. Oh, on that final note, how many buyers? would you say make what it's a, a cash offer so not conditional upon finance but are still using finance how how, how often do you see that this being the case can it can be temp- more tempting for a, a seller when they get a cash offer without those conditions but then obviously the risk falls on the buyer to actually get their finance and still complete and i myself and we've had to you know when you miss out on a few to a cash offer i've made the choice of making sure my finance is ready to fully go and but taking that risk where, you know, you may lose your deposit if it doesn't proceed. But I just thought I'd keep that commonplace it actually is. Yeah, I don't see it too much. I think if they're legitimately cash, we're, we're okay with it and, and see that they are cash. We have the odd one where definitely no, they're not, and they probably had no intention of ever being cash. So, But I'd like to think that they have done some very good due diligence such as yourself jared yeah certainly on the riskier end of the purchase and it's a very riskier side of things yeah we certainly if any client ever discussing that scenario we certainly um advising that it's there's a lot of risk involved obviously and you are really committing yourself to yeah that's right but as i say not as i do yeah <laughs> i guess it, it's always a case of weighing it up isn't it because your deposit is on the line um and uh, you know it certainly makes me nervous, but you know, I just lay up. I'm sure it makes Karina nervous too, mate. Yeah, <laughs> you can get yourself in trouble for that. <laughs> yeah, well, I just have to get her to, to close her eyes and accept just sign it. here, please. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I guess when you miss out on a few and you see prices going up, you just got to weigh up that just can be aware of it, not just think. Yeah, it's a case of being aware of the risk, isn't it? Absolutely, for sure, for sure. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for your time today. Went through a few other areas there that I um, wasn't planning to, but yeah, you're well with knowledge on what's happening, so really appreciate it. Awesome. No worries. Thank you so much. See you, mate. Take care. See ya. Just a reminder, the information discussed in this podcast is general in nature. As we don't know your specific situation, you should always seek professional advice before taking any action. For free market reports on your suburb of interest and other helpful resources to grow your wealth, make sure you join my property investor update at investorshedge.com.au slash join. And finally, make sure you're a member of our Perth Property Investment Facebook group to be part of the conversation with other like-minded investors, get help to your questions and get a feel for what's going on out there in the market. I'll see you in the group. Thank you.